You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Victoria, you are up first. All right. So I'm kicking things off this week with... One of the all-time strangest mammals. Um, I think I may have gotten myself in trouble here because there are really too many things to talk about in the amount of time we have. So imagine an ant's nest, but it okay. is filled with pale, wrinkled, blind, buck-toothed... Oh, I know what this is. ...hairless <laughs> rodents. <laughs> Are you oh doing naked mole Hairless rat? except, yes, it's the naked mole rat. Oh, the naked mole yes. rat. You get the prize Lovely. this week, Rachel. Yes. I mean, um, as soon as you said hairless and blind, all I could picture was Rufus from Kim Possible. She was all in, right? <laughs> um, all right, let's, let's learn all about the naked mole rat. Go for it. Yeah. Well, they're hairless except they have these, like, long, wispy white hairs all over their bodies, sort of like your great uncle who forgets to trim his ears. Ah, uh, yes. Um. Yeah, it is a rodent, so it's closer to a rat than to a mole. Um, it's actually closer to like a porcupine or a guinea pig within the rodents than rats and mice are. Um, That's weird. They're about, yeah, yeah. Wait, porcupine or guinea pig? Yeah, or, I, I guess apparently pretty I, much any I just any don't picture rodent. a porcupine and a guinea pig as being that similar. But that, <laughs> that's so That's a whole different. other episode right there. Dude, that's they're all very rodents. Different. That's right, true. Right. <laughs> I feel like we all forget that rodents is an order rather than a uh, like a family and then it goes down to species so everybody always for it's rodent is a much bigger uh thing group than people think it is yeah you got your capybaras to your mice to your kangaroo rats to your porcupines and your beavers all right tell us more um so they're on the smaller side they're about the size of a mouse most of them and I'm just going to say up front, these animals have a major PR problem. Um, I mean, you start with the name. That is not attractive. Naked no, mole rat. And the appearance is, yeah. only, is only making that worse. Um, but they That's have gross. so many unique things around them. And also, they're very popular as a lab animal. So, you know, they're getting some love. Um, from they're science. Native to the, from science. They're native to the Horn of Africa. Um, they live in dry grasslands, and they... They basically do have like an ant's nest. It's a very, it's a very apt comparison in this case because first, really strange thing about them, they are the only eusocial mammal. Um, that means like they live in a colony. There's one other kind of mole rat that also does this, but just like ants or bees, they have a queen that is the one that has all the babies. She has one, one to three guys that are breeding with her, and everybody else in the colony is a worker, and. They are hormonally suppressed, so they can't have babies, uh, and they're just—they're just doing all the dirty work. Um, right. Well, it sounds so like the queen the, is having a great. I time. guess it—it—it it, it, it does depend how you define dirty work. I guess. Well, uh, so we don't need to go there. They're in no, dirt. They are in the dirt, so there you go. it is literally dirty work. Um, 
they're caring for the pups and for the queen, who, by the way, uh, is larger than the others, just like a queen bee. Um, they're building tunnels. They're defending the colony. Also, they're feeding the pups. Um, this is the, the scientific term, fecal pap. Oh, I know what that lovely. is. That's, That's that is a lovely. time. Oh, gross. Look at that. What's about, we're about three minutes into the episode, and we're already into to fecal material. That's a new record there. Yeah. Is it, though? Um, we're naturalists. It's all about poop, really. Isn't it, it really is. It's all about poop. Okay, next weird fact. They are the only mammal, mammal, mammal. <laughs> nice one. <clears throat> Put it in the list. Mammal. That's a new one. <laughs> there it is. That does go on the list. Uh, that is ectothermic. That's cold-blooded. So um, unlike you, me, and every other mammal, they don't keep an internal body temperature that's the same. If they are getting too hot, they go down lower in the colony. If they're getting too cold, they get go up close to the surface where it's hot. Um, that is really strange for a mammal. Yeah, um, I thought... Sorry, I thought that was a defining feature of a mammal was that they were all endotherms. Nature laughs at your all. categories. <laughs> <laughs> I should have Since known. Since when has nature followed nice prescriptive boxes for things? Uh, that's not what it does. Yeah, that, that's right. I'm sorry. I forgot about that briefly. <laughs> Silly me. Um, also, they, they live underground. Their, their nests are basically sealed, so they have a very low oxygen environment, which they are really adapted to. They can survive up to five hours, at least five hours, in air that contains only 5% oxygen. For comparison, Whoa. yeah, humans start having problems if the oxygen level goes below 19.5%, and we cannot survive at all if it's lower than 6%. So these guys are... They have really they're, good hemoglobin. They're leaving us in the dust. <laughs> yes. Man, where can I get some of that good hemoglobin? N- naked That's mole a rats. great question. Your, your <laughs> local naked mole lab. Rats. I got to get my transfusion, yeah. I don't know Keep if we're compatible, Kirk, for that. <laughs> Probably not, no. Okay, related to this, scientists think they are insensitive to pain. Their skin uh, doesn't have neurotransmitters <laughs> to feel pain from acid or um, capsaicin, which is the chili pepper stuff. Does uh-huh. this does this explain why they're such popular lab animals? <laughs> yeah, right. Probably. That's yeah. kind of sad. That Aww. might. Oh. Poor naked mole rat. Yeah. Um, so scientists think that the low oxygen environment, because it causes uh, like excess carbon dioxide in their blood, that makes their blood acidic. So they don't want to be screaming in pain all the time from that. <laughs> That's Go fair. Figure. <laughs> yeah, totally fair. Also, they it's don't legit. do like you know how like dogs and people and all the animals are always scratching themselves. Right, they don't just, do that. I just did myself. You're gonna make they me don't itch. itch here. They don't I itch. I, now it's like I feel like I have lice because you said that. Well, they Congrats don't have lice because they don't itching? have hair, right? That must be the way it works. Must be, yeah. Lucky them. I wonder if okay. their skin is more sensitive to like their claws because if they're digging in the dirt and everything, like they must have like pretty sharp or pretty like distinct claws. So I mean, if you scratch with those, that would hurt. I think they mostly dig it with their teeth, actually. No, see, it wouldn't what? hurt, Rachel, because they don't feel yeah. pain. Oh, right. Clearly. I could be wrong on that. That wasn't in my research. Um, mm. But just looking at all the pictures, the claws were not very prominent, and the teeth are extremely prominent. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I have two more weird facts to go. All right, let's do it. All right. They're, they're highly resistant to cancer. Um, this may be one of the main reasons why uh, they're popular lab animals. Only tool mole rats have ever been found to have a tumor, and those were um, ones that were living in a lab in a high oxygen environment. And so scientists think that 
like the low oxygen may be somehow protective. One of the things that's protective against cancer for them, oh. among other things. And perhaps related to this, they also live really long for a rodent. So if you think about a rodent the size of a mouse, how long would you guess it would live? Is it being fed oh, to a snake? Boy. Uh, or an owl? I mean, those I'm are... going to go with no. Snakes are their main <laughs> predators, but we're going to go with no, just like in the normal uh, way Just natural life, but not, yeah. just not long, I mean, yeah. a year or something? Most, most rodents, I, I think their longest lifespan is like maybe two years. Yeah, so mice in a protected environment, like pet mice or lab mice, assuming they're not getting killed, will live up to like two to three years. These guys live up to 32 years. What? What? Yeah. I'm telling you, naked mole rat infusions. This is the future, people. Mm -hmm. It is. A naked mole rat has lived longer than I have been on this earth. That's crazy. <laughs> Many of them have. A lot of them have. Jeez. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, so as long as you don't mind turning into something that looks like a naked mole rat, naked mole rat infusions are the wave of the future for longevity. Huh. Amazing. And that is all I have for today. Thank you, Victoria. That My mind is blown right now. I don't know how to take any of that information. Well, Rachel, you better be, uh, you know, resting up. I'm going to go second after this short break. And you got to be ready to wrap things up and get your mind unblown and, and ready to present. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. Okay, we are back, and it's time for me to uh, throw some information at you, I want to talk about uh, an amazing woman named Marjorie Courtney Latimer. Have you heard of her? No. Stunned no. silence. Awesome. Uh, Marjorie was the curator of the East London Museum in not London, but South Africa, because that makes sense. Yep. Uh, she was an av avid of collector of just everything in, nat uh, in nature, huge uh, naturalist. And uh, one of the things she did, because she was near the coast, is she befriended local fishermen and, and made it known that she was interested in anything interesting that they caught. Now, that paid off on December 22nd, 1938, because she got a phone call from this uh, captain she knew who said he had found a strange fish. And he set it aside and told everybody, you know, no touching. Uh, this is for her. I don't want anything to mess around with this. So she gets there, and this is a quote from her. She says, I picked away at the layers of slime to reveal the most beautiful fish I had ever seen. She said it was five feet long, a pale mauvey blue with faint flecks of whitish spots. It had iridescent silver blue-green sheen all over. It was covered in hard scales and had four limb-like fins and a strange puppy dog tail. Now, I do have to interject here. I've, I've seen a picture of this specimen, and... Um, I, she is nuts if she thinks it looks like a puppy dog tail. This would be the most freakish looking I, puppy on the face of the planet. I would. So just, I was about to okay. say, like, I'm sorry. Ignore that part. It's, I don't know what she was. How would you describe the yeah, tail? Um, Especially like, if it came uh, out of the ocean um, with fishermen. Yeah, it's like no, a, no. it's. I I think it looks like the, the like a fan used by some sort of demon in a horror film. That's what the tail looks like. Puppy 
dog is not okay. the correct description. Well, that's Anyways, terrifying. She recognizes that this is something special she's never seen before. And she's like, maybe this is something new. So how does she get it back to the museum? Of course, she hails a taxi, which with a five foot long, <laughs> stinking, not. unrefrigerated fish. Outstanding. Um, she gets back to the museum, <laughs> looks through all her books and discovers that Delightful. she cannot find this fish in any of her books on fish. So she's okay, like, but, oh my gosh, but did maybe she, it's new, right? But did she pay the taxi driver well? Because that is a smell. That was not cleaning. in my information. I would I hope he got a I really good tip. There was a good tip involved. Um, so <clears throat> she doesn't have any way to preserve this. Uh, the museum's just not set up for this. So she's trying to figure out what to do. At one point, she actually contacts the local morgue and asks, asks them if they would help her... <laughs> preserve i assume embalm this fish and they said uh no no way go away that's fair and so she she finally had to give up and she talked to a taxidermist to uh try to preserve this uh at the same time she tried to phone up um a friend of hers who worked at rhodes university who's an ichthyologist named j l b smith Uh, it was christmas time though so he was away and she's like well it's gonna rot what am i gonna do so she had this taxidermist gut it and preserve the skin and stuff it basically right Okay, but here's the other question here. Yeah. Photography was a thing. Yeah, um, that's a good point. I think, you know, she wanted to preserve the... She may have taken pictures, but she wanted to preserve the actual specimen, too. Because that's what you do in science is you want to preserve the actual... The thing, right? Right. And she was like, maybe this is new. This is exciting. Well, Smith finally, you know, her friend finally hears about this. And he scoots down there... um, in February, a couple months later of 1939, and he was blown away when he saw this fish. And here's his quote. He said, there was not a shadow of a doubt. He said, it could have been one of those creatures of 200 million years ago come to life. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Is this the coelacanth? Yes, we're talking about the coelacanth, What? You guys. Okay, I had yes, no now- idea that's where you were going with that. <laughs> so we got to back up. I then. thought maybe earlier, and but... we got to talk about what a coelacanth is. Uh, coelacanth are fishes. Uh, they're from 400 million years ago. That's insane. Is when we first find them in the fossil record. Um, they are from the Devonian. And if you don't know about the Devonian, it's known as the Age of Fishes. Mm-hmm. This is way before dinosaurs. This is when plants were just starting to come onto land. The first plants, right? So right. we're not even two like land animals hardly at all. Um, maybe some of these first fish were starting to kind of experimentally crawl out of the water. Um, actually, the coelacanth and the lungfish, which mm-hmm. it's related to, are thought to be the first animals that came on land, the tetrapods. Right. Um, and so this was amazing because this was 400 million years ago. And these are incredibly successful animals. Um, they are found throughout the fossil record, throughout the dinosaur period, too. Dinosaurs came about 200 million years after the coelacanth. And dinosaurs first came about 200 million years after when we are. So the amount of time between when us and the dinosaurs started is half of the amount of time to when the coelacanths uh, first started out. They're actually not related to the ray-finned fishes that we think of today there's about 30 million species of fish on earth 99 percent of those fish are uh the ray finned fishes yeah this and is a low right uh yeah they're not even part of that group so if you picture a fish that this is a totally different kind of thing okay see the cans are crazy so, other than yeah other than them the coelacanths and the lungfish are they related to 
anything else uh, living? Not really that I know of. I mean, there may be some other really obscure like type of lungfish and stuff, but we, we still have lungfish today. Um, but coelacanths were thought to be extinct because at the end of the late Cretaceous time period, uh, which is when we think about the C2 sort of the classic barrier. Yeah. Right? So sort of the, so it's one like sort of the, you know, the comet or, or whatever came down and, and wiped out most life on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, they disappear in the fossil record and we're like, oh, so they're all gone. You know, 65 million years ago, they went extinct. Except all of a sudden here, uh, you know, Marjorie finds one at this essentially fish market and suddenly they're back from extinction. And this is sort of um, where the term living fossil comes from. Okay. It's this idea that there's only only one member of a once large family is still alive. We say that that is a living fossil. It's the only remaining um, example of a of line that has otherwise died out. One of the little cool asides on this, when um, the official description of this species of coelacanth, I do have to say this is a species of coelacanth. It's mm. not, coelacanth is not just one um, you know, type. It's a taxa. Um, oh. And so... This one has actually ended up being uh, described by J.L.B. Smith, and he named it after his friend uh, who discovered it. He named it after Marjorie. So, so the genus nice. is, is Latimeria after uh, Marjorie, which is a pretty awesome honor. Um, now, that, that, is that term, though, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, life goal right there. That term, though, living fossil, can no longer be used. What? For that, nope, can't, because... It's not the only one. Says who? It's not the only one, you guys. So <gasps> the coelacanth I'm talking about was found off the coastal waters of South Africa, um, also like the Comoro Islands, Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, and Madagascar. Um, okay. We should probably be calling that, though, the West Indian Ocean coelacanth because scientists found some more of them. Uh, in Whoa. 1999, um, the huh. Indonesian coelacanth was described by science in Indonesia. And I don't I say described by and not discovered because like a lot of species, uh, the local fishermen knew about it all along. Of course. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, one of those. Yeah. They call it the Raja Laut, and I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but it means king of the sea. Uh, there was a guy named Mark Erdman who was a marine biologist who happened to be on his honeymoon in Indonesia and was going <laughs> to like a fish market and was like, that's a coelacanth. That what what, what what is a coelacanth doing here in Indonesia? And he was like, something's different. The coloration was a little different, but it was unmistakably a coelacanth. And he was not in the position on his honeymoon to purchase, right. uh, you know, six foot long fish. I imagine so his pic- uh, new spouse oh, was very much no, no, yeah. no, no. Uh, that's walk not away. What you do on a honeymoon. <laughs> So uh, he uh, took photos and sent sent them to some of their scientists, and they were like, you got to get a hold of one of those. So he actually went back uh, a few months later to try to get one of these fish. He talked to all the fishermen, and it took many months. But that summer, they one of the fishermen did bring in another one of these coelacanths, and they've now found a lot of them, uh, although they're, they're pretty endangered, so there's not a ton of them. But we right. now know that they live uh, about 150 meters down under the water, That's... and they are... Hmm. Yeah, so deep, cold, cold water. And they yeah. live in essentially caves on the rock faces of like subterranean or not sub subterranean. Jeez. Sub <laughs> uh, you know, under underwater. They yeah. live in these underwater, you know, rock cliffs that have caves in them is where they're hanging out. I mean, um, you weren't wrong, Kirk. Crazy. It is subterranean because it is below the I earth, mean, technically. Yes. Yeah. Uh so cool things, uh, two little facts to finish up here with. One is that they did DNA analysis on the two different sort of species now that we have of coelacanths. 
And mind-blowingly, even though they look very similar, they believe the DNA diverged in these two species somewhere between 30 and 40 million years ago. Which is mind-blowing. Although if you've been around for 400 million years, 30 million years is like, eh. That's a blip on the record. And my absolute... Well, that's the... Well, go ahead. Yeah. That's the thing with these, these living fossils or, you know animals that are supposedly left over from millions of years ago. Like we don't really know how much they may have changed on the inside, no matter how much they look the same on the outside from the fossil record to Mm -hmm. now. Right. Yeah. And they have, they have changed some too. Like we definitely from looking at the fossils go, okay, this is a, a coelacanth. Actually the coelacanth interestingly was described. The fossil was first described about almost exactly 100 years before she discovered the live one. Uh, in that uh, from that that fisherman, so that's super cool. And my absolute favorite coelacanth fact Ready. is has nothing to do with this whole story. It has to do with the fish itself. Let's they go. obviously have a brain cavity where their brain is found. Right. Ninety eight percent of their brain cavity is filled with fat. What? And only one point five percent of their entire brain cavity is actually filled with brain matter. <laughs> I, I I don't even know what to make Why? of that. I, is it a is it a buoyancy thing? I mean, fat obviously obviously helps you stay buoyant. But imagine if your head was like ninety eight percent full of fat. And I'm not saying they're a dumb fish. I mean, like I just it's astounding that it's only one point five percent of their entire brain ca- cavity is full of brains. And uh, I just, th- it's maybe like a zombie protection thing because they're like brains. Oh no, never mind. Coelacanth. Moving on, moving on. But uh, oh, that really put there's on so the much more about coelacanths. Obviously, if you if you check them out, they are uh, super super cool animals uh, that are really a, a portal into the past of what life used to be like. Some of the earliest, you know, advanced life on Earth was like uh, so long ago, and it's so cool that they're still here today. And they haven't evolved a lot. I, you did mention if they have changed, they have gotten bigger o- over the, the that um, that time period. Interesting, but it's a there's not a whole lot of evolutionary pressure on them to change. The habitat they're in is the same habitat it was then. Uh, they're doing this, probably just kind of doing the same thing. They don't have a whole lot of reason to change. And so when something works in nature, it just sort of sticks around. It can stick around a long, long time. So It's a lot a of energy cool to animal. change. So, Yeah, silicants are uh, pretty awesome. That's absolutely great. Can you imagine so being? Can you imagine being the fisherman who catches this? Just hanging out and like, oh, let's catch the, I got this giant fish. Let's, I have a friend. We'll see what she says. Yeah. The original sea captain guy who found it, he knew it was something different when he found it. I don't think they were real common off the coast of Africa. And also because they're really deep. So you got to be, you know, getting like long Mm -hmm. lines down there to catch them and stuff. So Mm -hmm. I think he knew it was pretty special. They did, sadly, because it was taxidermy, they didn't have the skeleton. And they absolutely needed the skeleton to confirm that it really was a coelacanth. Uh, And they didn't get that until many years later when another one was finally caught uh, to really confirm what she had actually found. But now we know that she did find that. And the coelacanths are, they're back, baby. And uh, they're they're protected now, a lot of them, because they're, um, there's, there aren't a ton of them out there, but they're a very cool species. So, Rachel, you are going to be up after this short break. All right, let's go. (laughs) 
All right. Well, we've been underneath the underneath the dirt in the tunnels with. I the think the term you're looking for today. is subterranean. Under subterranean, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. We were <laughs> subterranean with the naked mole rats. Then we went further down with a lovely, if slightly horrifying, story about a coelacanth. Today, I'm going to take you up. So instead of going down, we're going to go ooh, all the way up. Up? How high? Uh, space. <gasps> I know where space we're going! Space nature? I know where we're going! We're going to do space. I already uh, you know I where think, we're going? I know oh, okay. I guess. You, did you I go to the same talk? You were there. No, um, I, was, I have a pretty... I I have a guess. Not, it's about an animal, isn't okay. it? No, it is not. <gasps> oh, maybe it's not. Not an animal. Mm, okay. Oh, it's not an animal. Maybe so, I'm wrong. We're going... I think I know the animal you're thinking of, and yeah, well, you definitely another talk about episode. That we'll get to that. Point. Yes. All right. So we're going up into space. We're all testing these different. Where scientists and astronauts are testing these absolutely uh, extreme conditions in preparation for both uh, potential Mars habitation of humans, seeing what if we could bring any sort of living creature to mars right or if anything could uh survive live in space or survive as you do now in 2005 actually they started with two different species and i practiced this (laughs) the species names were (laughs) and you might get a idea about what it is is um Rhizocarpon geographicum and Xanthoria elegans. Oh, yeah. Okay. Two of my favorites. Um, right. Now, these two species of this organism, I'll, I'll use that phrase, uh, went out into space. They sent it out into a capsule. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, Kirk. Oh, it, they, they can't, they can't see. Out. I'm holding up a, a, oh, a sticker right. that says holding uh, up a sticker that says the answer, but I'm not going to give it away. Yes, uh, it. They sent out this capsule and then mechanically opened it to out outside of the International Space Station, and they opened it up to the atmosphere. The void. Or or the, the, the lack of atmosphere. So it was in the vacuum of space, exposed to direct ultraviolet rays and radiation of the sun, and exposed to, uh, when it was in the Earth's shadow, negative 20 degrees Celsius, and when it was in the sun, 20 degrees Celsius, which I think is pretty That's cool. Pretty cool. That's, That's colder cold. than, uh, in general, you know, most places. Right. Now, when they brought it back, it was out and exposed for 15 days in space. And they brought it back in and they gave it a little bit of water. And it, totally fine. DNA wasn't damaged at all from all the UV radiation. Nothing. This sounds now, like some sort of like uh, superhero I know. I know. It really, people, most listeners really don't is. know what you're talking about yet. So I, I'm. I'm I know. super curious what so, they're picturing in their brain. Right. I. I really want to know. Um, we know it's not an animal. Mm-hmm. It is not an animal, but it's kind of. It's what's interesting is it's not 
one organism either. It's two. Well, yeah, you said two Latin names there. I did, but each of those two Latin names are actually two organisms. This kind of ties back into the whole thing earlier about how science likes to put things into boxes and nature doesn't like boxes. Nature <laughs> oh, no, hates boxes. The concept of a species gets real murky here. So much. Now, what I'm talking about today is lichen. A lot of us have Yay! seen lichen. I love lichen. There's this really fun way to figure out what something is uh, or whether it's lichen or not or how to remember it. Um, <laughs> there, It's a really fun story. It's Freddie Fungus and Alice Algae took a lichen to each other. <laughs> oh, yeah yeah that was terrible so a lichen what it is is it's an algae or a or a cyanobacteria that's in a symbiotic relationship with a fungi with some sort of fungus the fungi provides the structure whereas the algae or the cyanobacteria actually provides the food for both organisms so with that even um it, like I said, it's a symbiotic relationship. So that actually allows it to, they're able to benefit with each other. Um, the cyanobacteria will also uh, provide nitrogen that the fungi needs to help create some structure. Uh, there's tons of different forms of lichen and ways to identify. I mean, there's over, they haven't identified all of them. There's about 20,000 total species. <laughs> of uh lichen which is crazy to think about and they're always identifying more species uh especially since they will grow practically anywhere they will grow can, on rocks can you can you describe for people who can't see like what does a lichen look like like how would i know if oh. i've looked at a lichen or seen one that's that's fair um so a lichen oh man i a lot of people mistake it with moss. Uh, so mm -hmm. generally it's something that is uh, colorful. Uh, it can be, it could be white, it could be blue or green or orange even. Uh, I think it was the Xanthoria elegans uh, was actually a bright orange uh, lichen. Yeah, I probably and... got, it's a really common one that's probably, probably growing in your yard right now. Oh, mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, so they're, what they are is they're, um, Oh gosh, how do you describe lichen? <laughs> can I can I take a stab at it? You go for it. So if you think about maybe you've gone on a hike sometime or been walking around wherever you live and you see a rock or maybe a tree or even a telephone pole and it has a crusty looking patch on it. Mm -hmm. And it could be a kind of a crusty orange patch or a kind of a crusty gray patch. And maybe it's a little flaky looking or a little stringy looking, that's a lichen. They can grow on bare rock. It's kind of crazy. It's absolutely insane. Like they can grow on rock. They can grow on, well, yeah, like you said, they can pretty much grow on anything. Uh, the uh, crusty kind of look, that's definitely one way that you can, there's three different types of growth forms. And one of them is called, I'm not even joking, crustos. <laughs> <laughs> yep. and it's because it looks crusty so most lichen especially around where we are is going to be crustose or fructose fruit 
uh, fruticose. It's, it's fret. Fruticose. Fruticose. Everyone always wants to say fruit because we think of fruit, but it's just fret. Fruticose. Fret. Oh, it's that because there's dirty. the I after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to share that they actually. Uh, when they brought the lichen back, uh, what happened was they uh, gave it a little bit of water and it went right back to photosynthesizing without any problem. When it was out in the uh, really severe and extreme um, conditions in space, it actually went dormant, which allowed it to just absorb what was going on and just not necessarily absorb because these are to plant and plant like fungi is a weird we're not yeah, gonna get it's into not that. a plant or an animal it's in its own <laughs> no it's a whole other episode it's its own right thing <laughs> that is another episode uh but it, they were just fine when they came back in uh and once they got a little bit of water it started photosynthesizing and they tested the dna of both species and nothing was wrong and they replicated this experiment in uh 2017 as well uh, with just algae um, rather than going in with lichen. So uh, do you, that's, do you know that's how, how the how the algae by itself fared? Did it survive without the lichen? The algae also survived. Wow. Um, no problem. I I actually have the abstract in the scientific paper in front of me, and it was a special. Uh, what's it? It was a special species of algae that they find in Norway. Uh, and it was part of, uh, the lichen Cicernia. Yeah. Cicernia gyrosa. Gotcha. So it's a lichen, it's a algae that is also found in lichen. Yeah. I know it's one of the weird things it about, was. you can, you can have a species of algae that can grow by itself outside of a lichen. You can have a species of, uh, fungus that can grow by itself without any algae in it. And they're separate species, mm-hmm. but when you put them together into one symbiotic relationship, we call it a different species. When it's really more like a, a colony, and you can have bacteria growing in there too. So it's like it's really like its own ecosystem. But we we're stuck in boxes, so we we call them species. But yeah, that concept doesn't really uh, <laughs> it doesn't always apply. <laughs> I feel like yeah, not so much human boxes versus nature hating boxes is probably gonna a recurring theme here absolutely it, it might be yeah you know the one of the interesting things with with lichens too is there's some speculation you know if they can survive space we know for example that we have found meteorites here on earth that are from mm-hmm. mars i mean if a large impact uh, uh meteorite hits mars it can eject um pieces of rock into space that can eventually land on earth and we have found those and so then the issue becomes like Scientists started thinking, well, if lichens and some of the stuff can, or bacteria can survive a trip through space, like how long of a trip in space? And could life actually move from one planet to another in that way? And we have missions that are going on Mars right now that are looking for signs of life. So um, it's a pretty interesting topic to think about where does, where did life start? And did it start on Earth or did it start somewhere else and get seeded here by meteorites falling down to the ground i mean it's uh as the more we find out about how things survive in space the more interesting it gets oh absolutely and the study that i was talking about where they did um both the lichen and the algae at the one in 2017 that's when the study was published but they actually attached both of those organisms 
to not just expose it to space, but also a simulated at Mars environment. And they did that one for 18 months. Oh, wow. Uh, So that was much higher. And the Mars uh, environment, they actually uh, did better than exposed to just space, which makes sense. Not not so surprising. Although Mars is not a nice place to hang out. No, it is not. (laughs) For us. (laughs) Yeah. But they did uh, see that there was more DNA damage in the lichen that they studied when it was out in space or in the Mars uh, environment for, you know, 18 whole months. Sure. Makes sense. Excellent. Well, thank you for all that awesome nature information, you guys. We appreciate everybody being here this week. I'm not over the naked mole rats being 32 years old. We'll, We'll never be over naked mole rats. No. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange. Strange.